we, we, we are here, we're gathered as a church, we get to dig in, we get to laugh a bit, we get to hand out gift cards, if you will, and also um, war, right? So we live in a paradox where we hold such tensions of here we are, gathered together as the church, freedom to do this uh, and to enjoy snacks and treats as we do it and we'll go home and there are things that we have and then there are things in our world that are just utter chaos and destruction and so we want to kind of lean into that. So I want to take a moment and pray uh, for, for peace, right? For that we would have a semblance that we would unite in humanity, that we'd first and foremost think about uh, human compassion and uh, humbling of hearts and changing of minds and moving towards um, peace, certainly. So I, I want to pray and then I want to read a poem uh, some of my reflection time this morning that was meant to say when we live in this paradox how maybe we can approach uh, the idea that there is good and there is bad and there is some of us are in the midst of flourishing and others are suffering and how do we balance that and how do we do that? So first a prayer and then a poem. Uh, gracious God, uh, we bless you for this day. We have air in our lungs. We have the gift of life and we do not want to take that lightly. We want to celebrate that and honor that. And we live paradoxically knowing that there is destruction and chaos and war and hurt and pain and lives being lost in our world, and we pray desperately for your grace and peace and mercy uh, in the midst of that. So we pray um, for the people in Ukraine uh, as they have a very different reality as they wake up this morning. And so we pray for peace. We pray for your comfort that is needed uh, desperately. And we pray for uh, the transforming of minds, the conviction of hearts um, is well gone. Uh, we desire more than anything to, to, to see peace. And so that is our prayer. And in any way that we can step into that and, and, and do something about it, that we would not uh, hesitate. Um, so that is our prayer. And that is our heartbreak. And we pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, and then a, a poem uh, that is meant to hold the tension. I do that because um, I'm... An... Yeah, we're going to talk about flashlights in a moment. But I'm technologically an idiot, so, um, so we'll do that too. Um, this poem is written by a gentleman named Jack Gilbert. He passed away in 2012 at the uh, age of 87 years old. Uh, so he was born in the early years. He grew up in the Depression. And so he then, uh, all of these, he has this influx of where he was early on became famous for his poetry. And then he took about six months of that. And then he said, I cannot do that anymore. That world of being famous is just not for me. And he like weaved in and out of like heartbreak and writing and not writing for decades and then coming back to it. And he has this one poem that's meant to be, what do we do when we are faced with and seemingly bombarded with uh, bad news, difficult news? 
Uh, and then he, he said, yet we experience life that can be good. And, and so he wrote a poem called A Brief for the Defense. And it's amidst of like, how do we still delight? Because we don't want to lose that even when things are difficult. And I found this very helpful and um, a good time uh, meditatively this morning. So I want to read this to you. Sorrow everywhere, slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they are starving somewhere else with flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's what God wants. Otherwise, the mornings before summer dawn would not be made so fine. The Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. The poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they have known and the awfulness in their future, smiling and laughing while somebody in the village is very sick. There is laughter every day in the terrible streets of Calcutta, and the women laugh in the cages of Bombay. If we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. If the locomotive of the Lord runs us down, we should give thanks that the end had magnitude. We must admit that there will be music despite everything. We stand at the prow again of a small ship anchored late at night in the tiny port looking over to the sleeping island. The waterfront is three shuttered cafes and one naked light burning. To hear the faint sound of oars in the silence as a rowboat comes slowly out and then goes back in is truly worth all the years of sorrow that are to come. I found that helpful and needed. So with that, um, let's sink into this letter known as the gospel according to Matthew, which this morning just happens to weave in and out of that kind of paradox and that kind of feeling. So uh, this gentleman, as we understand it, who wrote the gospel of Matthew is a young Jewish man who is employed by Rome, the global military superpower of the day, to collect taxes from his Jewish people, which then stuffed the robes of the empire and religious system. This vocation made Matthew a traitor to his people. Yet Matthew, which we will read about his calling to follow Jesus in chapter 9, will eventually write up this account of the life and ministry of Jesus, which he witnessed firsthand. Because of his vocation, Matthew was considered an outsider then, a most unlikely disciple, which turns out to be a much-needed voice in telling the life of Jesus who is living to reach all people, the left out, the looked down on, and, well, the least likely. And over the last several weeks, then, we have been digging into the largest recorded 
teaching of Jesus known as the Sermon on the Mount, which actually then looks more like this foothill, Sermon on the Mount, in Israel. It's this foothill, not really a mountain, more of a foothill, and it's in this region. Uh, So we'll put up the map to give you an idea of the Sea of Galilee, more of the northern part of Israel. This is where they understood it to be. And so as uh, I walked this hill and spent time there, you look at it and you're like, it's not a mountain, more of a foothill, it's there. Um, that we get this idea amongst the fishing villages of this region of Galilee, very uh, poor region, um, that this sermon took place among a whole mishmash of people. And it's here in this place that Jesus is giving a teaching to his disciples, showing them how it is that you can walk with one foot in the kingdom of heaven. Follow me and walk with one foot in the kingdom of heaven as you walk here in your life. Jesus began this monumental teaching with what we know as the Beatitudes, or the blessings. A rhythm of the divine meeting people, all people, right where they are, as they are. And this encounter with the divine is what awakens or unleashes the holy placed within the human which leads the awakened to meet others now right where they are, as they are. This is a life marked by growing up in God, maturing in the movement of the divine in us, which is the very point of these last several teachings found in Matthew 5, and then Matthew 6, which was started last week by Pastor Lisa Stonehouse, who did it so very beautifully, and that was a gift to have her kind of launch us into chapter 6 of Matthew. Her point is that she was circling the posture of one's heart as they engage in what uh, we might call spiritual practices or disciplines. What does it look like to do these disciplines or practices? The practice of giving, the practice of prayer, and the practice of fasting each of which are meant to be, they're not meant to be an external showcase of religious piety, but rather it was meant to kind of be a revealing of what is going on in your heart. Why are you doing these practices? Why do you do the disciplines, practices that you do? It's about posturing our heart toward the divine. So these, though, uh, giving, uh, fasting, Prayer, these were kind of the most common practices they had in the first century growing up in God. It was an intentional move to mature in this. The question was simply, who are you doing this for? Why are you doing this? Who are you doing it for? And that, of course, shaped why one was even doing these practices to begin with. And then Jesus moves fluidly from those three practices contextually into what it is people truly consider valuable is what we will dig into in our main central text this morning. So here we go. Matthew uh, 6, chapter 19 through 24. This is our central text for this morning. And then, of course, it'll take us, well, lots of places, correct? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, then how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Yes! The famous scripture surrounding treasures and heaven and earth and why one cannot serve both God and money. Now, this is going to shock, shock you, those who know me, but I'm really excited to dig into this scripture today. I love it. I am very excited to dig in. Why? Because it has two of the most tension-filled topics we have in our world today, God and money. And why is it that these topics are full of tension? Why? Why can't we talk about faith and finances? Is it possible to thoroughly enjoy resources and money while also having a focused, ferocious faith in Christ? Is that possible? This highlights one of my biggest pet peeves. You get to learn one of my biggest pet peeves. It drives me absolutely bonkers when we don't talk about the things that matter most. Why not? Is it because churches have a more recent tradition of shaming, guilting, and being duplicitous as it pertains to money? That's fair. Yup. But not the church. Can we be clear on that? Particular churches. Yep, sure. And then that trash gets splattered all over social media and the media, and it's out there. Great. Yep, of course. Or there's the endless stories of greedy and slimy televangelists who have duped people into poverty while they fly around in private jets. Again, totally fair. Let's name it. Call that crap out. It's real. Plenty of blame to go around for the dysfunction surrounding churches and money. Got it. And I assume connected to that then is how people simply don't want to talk about money as it pertains to matters of faith, church, and God then. Or maybe people were raised to compartmentalize these topics. That happens. And I have to think there's an understanding that the earth is ours and it's only about the present, while heaven is God's, and it's about some other times, specifically, you know, the future after death. Some people think that way. But that idea doesn't come from the Bible, yet it certainly tries to use the Bible to push its agenda. So far, so, so far as we've been in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, have we once heard Jesus talking about after people die? Nope, because that's not of utmost interest to Jesus. He is teaching about life to the full now in this life, which of course transcends the present, but it begins by including the present. When Jesus speaks of heaven, he's not focused on time, rather he's focused on place or realm, which our brains don't really function well in. Seeing by, he uses the language kingdom. This kingdom language is really, really important, but rather than have me talk about it, let's have our good friend N.T. Wright 
say more about this idea of heaven. As with other references to heaven and earth, we shouldn't imagine he means don't worry about this life, get ready for the next one. Heaven here is where God is right now and where if you learn to love and serve God right now, you will have treasure in the present, not just in the future. Of course, Jesus, like almost all Jews of his day, believed that after death, God would have a wonderful future in store for his faithful people, but they didn't normally refer to that future as heaven. That's not how they talked about things. They actually talked about the age to come, which was different yet. I think this understanding of being present and alert to the present is really, really crucial. When people, when people pin hope solely on time and only in future time, a likely goal, whether unconsciously or consciously, would be one of escape from the present then. Correct? You can see that. We just need to get out of here, now. And as the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer, however you know it, states, God's will, which is God's rule and reign, is about weaving heaven into earth now through how we live and move and have our being, as Paul quotes some pagan philosopher. And now it's in our Bible. Thank you very much. How we live and move and have our being today. Great. I also think this helps us stay present to the context of the text, which we should play with, right? This section comes out of Jesus talking about the disciplines or practices of giving, fasting, and prayer. This was the context he's coming out of. In these, Jesus said not to practice these as a play actor, which they called in the first century a hypocrite. In our central text today, Jesus sticks with the body metaphor. He's going to talk about the eyes, why? Because even in the first century, it was understood that a play actor, a hypocrite, could fake a smile, or they could put on a mask and cover up the majority of their face, but what they could not cover up is their eyes. They can't hide their eyes, and here's the thing, the eyes cannot lie. They even knew that then. The eyes tell the story of the soul. They alert the world of what's happening behind the curtain of one's heart. Plus, in antiquity, many people thought that the eyes projected light. They actually thought back then, in the ancient world, where we understand now it takes in light and discerns it and figures that out and sends all these signals, they thought then that the eyes projected light. So that makes sense then when he says the eyes are the what? Lamp. Of the, well, because they actually thought that is kind of how it worked. The eyes are kind of like a flashlight for us. So then, that's going to set up eyes connected to treasure, connected to heart. The context. The practices previously mentioned by Jesus, especially fasting, are about exercising the ability to be in control of our bodies which moves us into how Jesus is now going to encourage his followers to show the ability to be in control of our stuff, our resources. Are you with me? Jesus is taking the idea of real needs, food, clothing, and shelter, and saying, of course you can have them, but the question is, do they have you? That's his question. You can have them. 
Just don't let them have you. Practice self-control, which begins by being able to name the difference between actual needs and simply wanting more. Is this a need or do I just want more? And in the context of servants and masters, which he puts in here, Jesus says you can only be loyal to one and take orders from one, otherwise you'll end despising or resenting the other. If you have more than one master, eventually that starts slamming together and you'll have to pick one and you'll despise the other or get really frustrated with the other. This is like reality. Jesus is pulling from life and saying, you all know this. Which leads to Jesus talking about how people perceive and posture themselves toward the idea of treasure, which is about that of highest worth. Now, does Jesus have a problem with money itself? Not that we see. He doesn't really say as much. Here's the thing. Jesus is focused on what people hold as valuable in their heart because he knows that's what will have a hold of their heart. That's his whole focus here. And this is something we should talk about all the time then. Oh, this is what matters, so we should talk about it. We should be able to talk about it because we want to grow and mature as followers of Jesus. Then we're going to talk about the things that matter most, of course. So we study the text while circling our hearts as honestly as possible. Because Matthew 6, 21 says it really, really well, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is, this is the juice of the text, this verse. What is it that we hold in our heart? What is it that we define as treasure? It's a great question. In order to get at that, we should further lean into the eyes that function as lamps and bodies that are bursting with light or shriveling up in darkness, which kind of sounds like some sort of sci-fi movie Jesus is pitching in the first century. What exactly is Jesus getting at with this language? Well, let's read 622 to 23 again. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The language of either having healthy eyes or unhealthy eyes within the context of the Greek language, which the New Testament was written in, is about having either a generous view of life or a stingy view. Of life. And then the Hebrew language is actually these words that Jesus uses function as a Jewish, a Hebrew idiom used to describe a person's outlook on God, life, and other people. To have a good eye, the Hebrew is tov ayin, is to see God as good and overflowing with abundance which then frees people, if we actually think God is good and is abundant with goodness and generosity, then that will affect how we view other people and how we act towards other people and how we act with what we have. And we are willing then to give to others as needed. And to have an evil eye, that is ayin ra'ah, that's the Hebrew, ayin ra'ah, is to view God, life, and others then in either a stingy or 
constricting manner, which then holds, oh, now I've got to hold things tightly. I'm going to hold on to my stuff. I'm going to be greedy is what it is. And I'm not going to be generous because the view is this whole thing could fall apart any minute. There's no way God's big enough to handle this whole thing. So I better cling to what I have. This idiom, by the way, is still used today. In Jerusalem, when they go around raising money in Jerusalem, they say, please give with a good eye. It's the language they use. Please give with a good eye. Ayin tov, or tov ayin, which invites us to ask, how does one see God? How do they view God? Is it from a place of abundance or from a place of scarcity? And that, of course, shapes how one will see the world around them. This is where the wisdom literature that we have in the scriptures steps in and offers us gift after gift after gift, such as Proverbs, which, by the way, uses this Hebrew idiom. We find it in our English translations say this, Proverbs 22.9. English translations, the generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. But now let's make room for the Hebrew, the original Hebrew, so we can catch the idiom, which I think gives us a, like a deeper, wider view of this whole thing. So let's use the Orthodox Jewish Bible. He that hath a tov ayin, a generous eye is how it's written, shall have a baracha, or bracha, which is blessing, for he giveth of his lechem, bread, to the dal, poor. The one with a generous eye will experience blessing because the bread that he has, he's willing to share with the one who doesn't. Beautiful. So this is a picture of priorities. What do we consider as treasure? And how we answer that will lead to what is it that captivates our eyes or like our gaze, what seizes our gaze and how we look, where we look, what catches our eye and holds our attention, which of course leads to how life will be seen through our eyes. So this teaching is about paying attention to the layers stacked on top of one's heart, which though will be visible in our eyes which becomes what pours out of our very lives. So what is seen by others is but what we spend most of our time seeing. That'll be picked up. Guys, don't lie. Which I think invites us to ask some questions. Let's move to our world today about what has been unfolding the last couple of years which has been a revealing brought on by the collision of a pandemic and all sorts of social injustice, which simply has pulled back the curtain of the heart. A season, and I would just argue the last two years is the season that might one day be retold as the tale of tussling for toilet paper or socking someone for sanitizer. Those are the things that came to mind. Ah, maybe we'll call it that. Which is really, though, that whole idea of when we panic-stricken and think, ah, oh, it's really an inflated version of what happens every time the weather service announces that there's a storm on the horizon, so we better stock up because we might get stuck at home, no, for two days, no, 
then what we need to do right now is we need to bolt to the store. We need to put the seats down in the minivan so we can get bottled water and we can stock up on food so that we can make it. And then we get home to the bat cave and we hunker down in the bat cave and then we get the news, the storm missed us. And we're like, great, now I have beefaroni for a year. Right? Can you imagine in the midst of this, when this is being spun though, what would happen at the very time the pandemic seems to be subsiding? What would happen is if a war was initiated? I bet much of the news media and social media would run a narrative of fear. Rather than being focused on relentless hunger for peace, unity, and human compassion, people might spiral into talking of gas prices and supply chain issues, wondering if there will be enough. Which leads me to a question that is certainly contextual, especially in America, and I don't want to be insensitive, so let's answer in our mind. Which of these is more likely to take place in your house, seeing the back of an empty refrigerator and cupboards or throwing out food because some mold has shown up on unused bread or uneaten food? Which is more likely to happen? Which makes me think about expiration dates on food, a relatively new idea in the history of the world, largely found in America. Which leads me to wonder, how many of us have more than one refrigerator or freezer? Which also leads me to wonder, how many of us rent a storage unit? Or are aware that storage units continue to grow as a lucrative business in America, which leads me to the data that says, according to Mordor Intelligence, Mordor is Lord of the Rings, intelligence research, the market value of the self-storage industry reached 87.65 billion U.S. dollars in 2019. By 2025, that valuation is expected to grow to 115.62 billion dollars. Here's the thing, it has gone up. It has grown in the midst of a pandemic. Why? Due to simplifying. Some people are like, what in the world happened? And they simplify, they downsized. Or working remotely, they all of a sudden realize, I don't need all this stuff. So what do we do with that extra stuff? We put it in storage. But here's the rub that I found. More than 25% of customers told the self-storage association that they were storing items that they quote-unquote no longer need or want. So now we've just left the just-in-case scenario. And now we're storing it because. Which leads to why we have not a single TV show, but several TV shows about our obsession with collecting, consuming, and hoarding stuff. And now it's entertainment for others. Which brings me to a recent conversation I had with my wife, wherein I was trying to thin out my wardrobe, and then I caught myself saying things like, well, I might need that outfit if I perform a wedding on a tropical island in October. <laughs> like, that's, and that, that, that's hyperbole, Shh, a little bit. 
But these, you, you know this conversation. Have you had this conversation where you start wandering down that kind of deep weeds thing where I'm like, well, I might need that if a Thursday came about in which it rained, but then an hour later, and it's like, good, get rid of it. For the love of all, the thing is just sitting there, Wally. Yeah, it's real. Now we're beginning to scratch at what Jesus means when he says how we can be filled with light or darkness. If we view the divine through a lens of an abundance of goodness, then that lens will lead us to viewing others through love and generosity by sharing our money and time so our life will be full of light and it will be lighter. But if we see the divine as stingy, then it's likely we will see all of life from a place of scarcity, thinking solely about enough and our bank accounts and turning a blind eye to the needs of others, which will render us soul blind. Ouch. So Jesus invites his followers to pay attention to what they view as treasure so that their view will be eternally measured. Let me say that again. Jesus invites his followers to pay attention to what they view as treasure so that their view will be eternally measured. This whole passage about priorities with the central priority being God, so having a divine view of life. In viewing and walking with the God who is generous, we walk with one foot in the kingdom of heaven. And that is good news for us, and it's good news for every single person we interact with. And when we can engage in meaningful conversations about that which matters most, we can have honest conversations about the state of our heart, and then we can speak clearly and compellingly about why we live the way we live and give the way we give. Because here's the thing. Uh, let's put this up. To value, remember... Oh, that's the next, okay, I'll say this. To follow the divine is to live a life of generosity, which is not measured by how much you have or give, but by a heart that is growing and loving and giving and loving to give. To follow the divine is to live a life of generosity, which is not measured by how much you have or give, but by a heart that is growing and loving and giving and loving to give. And that takes us to one final passage. So, but before we get to it, we got to have a little context. One of the first Christians, a guy named Paul, is writing to a young church community in a city called Corinth. In many ways, this is a very immature church. So Paul writes them letters, two of which that we have, encouraging them and challenging them to grow, to mature in their relationship with God which includes a conversation on generosity and giving. Watch, though, clearly how Paul does not tell them how much specifically to give, but he encouraged them to take an x-ray of their heart when they give. So now let's read 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 8. Remember this, church, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you, you've got to figure it out, what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. Praise God, church, stop guilting and needling people to give. 
Maybe put some boxes in the back and say, we would love for you to participate in partnering with us. We're not going to guilt and shame you because you guilt and shame giving is not interesting and it's destructive and I don't want that for you. But if you feel compelled and God moving in your heart and you want to participate and give, ah, oh, beautiful, love it. So then it's God loves a cheerful giver. Then you're thrilled. I'm excited to do this. I want to participate in this way. Beautiful. And God is able to bless you. God is able. Just the language, Paul's like, of course we have a, a generous God. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will what? What a great word, abound in every good work. Now, what are the words Paul uses to describe a church that is maturing then? This, generous, cheerful, one that views God as abundant and one abounding in good works. This, is a, this these are words Paul uses to, to describe a church that is maturing and growing up in God. Which leads me to a card that we received two weeks ago. Let me just give you a piece of it. Dear Walker Harbor Church, thank you for your generosity and hospitality in support of a single mom and Walker. Your generosity provided her with some respite in the midst of a cold winter. Your assistance during a crisis for this dear woman helped her keep employment with rides to work. You helped her feel less alone. Church, you are a gift and you abound in giving good gifts. Now here's the thing. Let's be sure to take the training wheels that have come off the bike of this church and we're going to take those training wheels though and we're going to give them away. Otherwise, we might be tempted to take the training wheels and put them in storage. And then that might keep our heads thinking at some point we can get them out of storage and put them back on our bike. No, we will not, church. We will give them away because we don't need the training wheels anymore. We're going to continue growing up in God, in generosity, in compassion, in giving, in serving, in being good news to others. That's what we're going to continue to do because that's who you are, church. That's who you are. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we bless you for this invitation, for this challenge that you give in this scripture to pay attention. God, you invite us to pay attention to what it is we treasure, that we hold as treasure, that we view as treasure. So then how we view others, how we view everything, it is this give and take that all flows through our heart. And God, you care about our heart. You ask us to pay attention to it and protect it because it's from our heart in which we live, give, serve, and care. So we pay deep attention. Thank you for the challenge 
in this, God, in the invitation. And God, I bless you for this church, for a church that just loves and is joy-filled to step up, step in, to care for people. God, I bless you for this church, for a church who loves to give to those who need, who are hungry, who are thirsty, who are cold, who need a community to rally around them. It's not just giving resources, it's giving relationship. And I bless you, God, for a church that desires to love people and be with people and walk with people so that we together can walk with one foot in your kingdom. I bless you, God, for that, for loving us, for meeting us right where we are. May we continue to wake up to your love, your generosity toward us so that we can meet others right where they are, as they are, and do like you and walk with them, love them together. Pray this in the name of Christ Jesus.